the ending of our second full day and night of practicing together. Noticing what that perception does. Second full eon of practicing. (laughs) Second full great kalpa of practicing together. Second full eternity of practicing. (laughs) Oh, wow, I've made this much progress. Seven more days. I did a whole 10-day retreat and a half a 10-day retreat when I started. A half a 10-day retreat because I, I got into one when a place opened up. This was let's see, 34 years ago. And I thought, wow. Okay, so it was hell. It was hell. <laughs> But after four days of hell, I did have that peaceful. And I thought, being mathematically inclined, I calculated, well, if I could do that in a 10-day retreat and a half, then I decided to go to Thailand. I should be able to blow this enlightenment thing out in a year. Okay, give another year or two, two in case. And then come back and live happily ever after. (laughs) The path has been humbling. (laughs) Humbling. But I do not regret having undertaken the practice. Yes, it's more difficult than I imagined. But all along the way, there were points that kept me going, kept reminding me of, relatively speaking, the insanity of my life when there was no practice in it. I grew up where the big events were what was important. And it's not that they're not important, but the exams, the tournaments, the winning, And having a mom like I had, who was wonderful, kept scrapbooks on all of us. So when I had my five Mid-South Championship wrestling trophies and my academic awards, I, I could look, and there it was all in the scrapbook and up on the wall. And I worked hard. It wasn't that that was bad. But my mind was conditioned toward the big event, to winning, you know, working hard in that sense that that would somehow make me worthy or lovable or, again, I don't regret the effort. It was, I learned a lot in the process, but there was a delusion in there. It was always aiming ahead. So I didn't know really how to appreciate anything, to savor, to be. Now, effort is important. I don't want to put down effort. Striving is important. But it's helpful if it's accompanied by clear seeing. When I was young, I'd seen, when I was, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, and I, I, at the church we went to, there was a, someone from the local high school came, he was a national wrestling champion. His name was Charlie Moore. And um, mom was a Southern Baptist, dad was a New York Jew, so they compromised. 
and they took us to the Unitarian Church. <laughs> and uh, that's a whole other story. Uh, but it was, it was uh, lovely. They were encouraging us to appreciate the wisdom that came from, from Jesus and from Moses and from Buddha and from Krishna and from all, in the sense that somehow there is a unity somehow in the midst of all this diversity, but that we can learn from lots of places. So I'm grateful for that. But I met this wrestler, and so I remember being young and uh, wanting to know whether I could be a wrestler. Now, he was a heavyweight. He was huge. I was tiny. But the advantage of wrestling is you can be little, and there's weight classes for the little guys, for the medium guys, for the heavy guys. So I worked and worked and strove and strive and all the different verbs and everything. And I remember once when I, when I got to the point, I'd won these Mid-South Championships. And then I got to the, this National Invitational Tournament was up in Pennsylvania. We flew up from Tennessee. And I got to the finals. And I was 17. And I, great match. I was just, everything was kind of flowing. And uh, the person I was wrestling was a champion from the year before. But I was just flowing. So I won the match, I don't know, something like 13 to 2. And the referee held up my hand. And so I had kind of made it. And I knew that then my picture would be on the wall next to Charlie Moore's picture. And that was wonderful. It was lovely. But I'm, I'm not kidding you. Minutes later, even minutes later, my mind was scanning. Who's coming back next year? Who am I going to have to defend my title with? I was already worrying. I don't want to put down achievement. Striving achievement is important, but somehow You can open the scrapbook and see it, but it dissolves so quickly. I had a good friend in, at university who, who then went off to work at a, a big corporation, and he worked so hard, worked so hard, but he was aiming for the holiday, aiming for the holiday, aiming for the holiday, working so hard knowing the holiday was coming. Then he was devastated. He got on holiday. And he was so leaning toward aiming, he didn't know how to be on holiday. Holy day. Be whole, be gathered, be present. We're not throwing out effort, not throwing out striving. But the beauty of this practice is, is that we're actually learning how to be where we are, learning how to appreciate the fullness of that, the beauty of that. But it's not easy because of all these tendencies, all these habits that make us think that it's, it's around the corner at that big event or it's with that special feeling or it can't be this. This is painful. This is difficult. It must be somewhere else. <clears throat> these are all these currents and things that, I'm talking, that I talked about this morning, these swirling eddies and currents that when we don't really have clear seeing, we get swept by what the Buddha called these floods or these outflows, swept by desire, thinking we're going to get there. We don't often question the desire. We just think we're going to get there. Then, then even when we do get there, 
okay. It's not to put that down, but we're so, what, wherever we get to, guess what? It's there and then it changes. Have we really appreciated the changing nature of things? Have we ever really cultivated a relationship with how actually things are in this moment? flood of wanting something, flood of wanting, getting swept by, wanting to get rid of the difficult sensations. So when we come on a retreat like this, we, and sit down and it's silent, we're not being distracted very much, after we've read every single label, every single sign, <laughs> 14 times. But even so, it's, we still can't help but meet ourselves. As our dear friend and teacher Ajahn Sujito says, we're eyeball to eyeball with our karma. It's just whoa, right there. And it's not easy. Whereas Ajahn, Ajahn Chah says, it's like walking into a hurricane. Some people might think, yeah, look at those people up there at that, whatever you call it, IMS, sitting on their butts while the world's going up in smoke. <laughs> yeah, enjoy yourselves, enjoy yourselves, yeah. <laughs> no, don't feel guilty that everyone's suffering. No, 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 if I can just space out. You try spacing out. <laughs> when I was a monk, I would get invited to give talks. And once I gave a talk to a place where people had severe physical disabilities, and they had a little hallway, and I waited there, and then all these electric wheelchairs. It was an amazing assembly. Different people kind of came in with the wheelchairs and stuff, and so I gave a talk about how we all have these different disabilities. Some are more obvious, some are less. And one of the nurses afterwards in the questions was so frustrated. So it's easy for you sitting up there in that monastery just being peaceful. <laughs> I don't think I quite said it like this, but I mean, you try it. <laughs> this is tough. And if you are ill, would you rather have someone tending to you who could be at ease, who could be kindly, who could feel with you? Or do you just want someone who's all gnarled up with anguish? As we meet ourselves in this work, it's not easy. But it's praiseworthy. It's not easy to do. The Buddha said it's easier to conquer 10,000 warriors in individual combat on the battlefield than it is to truly train yourself. It's easier to do that than to tame the heart, to transform the heart, to overcome all these floods. Oh, it's that difficult, I don't know. But at some point we realize that just continuing to pretend and continuing to be asleep is not doing it anymore. At some point, when we realize that, the, that we can't have our hand held up forever at that one moment of success, we start to question Only, only so many kind of cappuccinos or so many <laughs> movies or so many, though I do like movies, or so many exciting experiences to begin to, to sense that mind that's always trying to get something, how that keeps coming up short. And that point, it's a very important point, 
when I first met my Thai meditation master, he, he said, Bumai. Sounded like he had indigestion. <laughs> Bumai. That's the word in Thai. I'm sure my pronunciation is not great. That means, are you weary? Are you bored yet? Bumai. <laughs> are you bored yet? Spiritually, that's an important experience rather than just think, oh gosh, you better perk yourself up there. <laughs> Come on, let's go. You know, that weariness is that world weariness, what the Buddha called nipita. World weariness is an important insight to realize that you keep, we keep trying to squeeze satisfaction out of the world and we try even harder and harder and we find ourselves racing around getting frustrated, and we can get depressed, think something's wrong with us. We see everyone else smiling and looking so happy, perhaps. But that world weariness is important because it can be the beginning of the great reversal where we begin to turn the energy back and start to question what is happening here. to inquire. No matter how beautiful the sight, how lovely the sound, how exquisite the, the contact, the sensation, we start to see, and those are very real pleasures, but when we see that their nature is to keep dissolving on us, at some point, we, we, we realize we, we can't get it. That recognition is important, which can lead to a renunciation, a letting go, and a willingness to then come back and start checking the source, checking the ground, checking this place, this space. In the Buddha's own life, there were turning points, important turning points. I think you've all heard the story that, you know, he grew up a prince. Or his father was some sort of chieftain or king. And uh, great wealth, lovely. He grew up with uh, the best food, the most subtle and beautiful silks from Benares, most beautiful beings around him. But he described that at a certain point, this turning point started to happen when he was about 29, that he finally registered. He registered the limitation of the sense world. He was young, he was beautiful, surrounded by young and beautiful beings. And it penetrated his heart, old age. He, he saw himself meeting an old person, gnarled over, blotched skin, teeth not beautiful, bent, lack of energy. He caught himself reacting with revulsion. Similarly with a sick person, he called himself someone vomiting with diarrhea. He called himself turning away. He said, what? when it penetrated his heart away, but this body is also subject to old age sickness and death too. What, what am I turning away from? What am I... He was ashamed. He 
said, the vanity of youth left me at that moment when he realized he was, he was living in this kind of dream. He encountered death as well and realized, no, I shouldn't be ashamed of this. I should be interested in this. Is that all this is about? Just joy ourselves, old, sick, death, curtains. So a question arose, a question arose. So that already started this, because he had had all the most beautiful things. And then he saw where it was heading. The question arose, is there something that doesn't die, that doesn't age, that doesn't sicken, that doesn't decay, that isn't subject to sorrow? that's free, that's truly peaceful. This question came up. It was so powerful that it made him let go, leave his, his royal inheritance, even leave his family. Because he wanted to, because he could see all the suffering that came. He saw the suffering to living beings and their loved ones that came from old age, sickness, death. He went forth. We've heard the story. He studied with the yogis of the day. First had a teacher called uh, Alara Kalama. And, uh, you know, he'd seen all this kind of the dangers of sensuality in the sense that they're impermanent. His first teacher, Alara Kalama, taught how to go to a formless state. This is like an Olympic vaulting yourself out of this experience into an experience where you don't feel the body at all. He is hardworking. He, he accomplished and attained what's called the state of nothingness, which had peace in it. But he kept coming down. He would come back down. And then he realized he still hadn't solved hadn't understood these issues of old age, sickness, and death, even though he could go into a state where there was nothingness. And even though Alara Kalamata offered him to jointly lead the order, he could see, well, this disciple's got it. Siddhartha Gautama, that's his name before he was, became the awakened one, he, he, he knew this doesn't lead to deep peace that I'm looking for. So he left, found another great teacher named Uddhakaramaputta, strove and attained in a more subtle state of formlessness called neither perception nor non-perception. These are Olympic states of disembodiment. (laughs) But again, he came down knew this wasn't really what he was looking for. So then I'm coming down. I'm not quite sure how he thought about this, but maybe he thought, oh, this body's bringing me down. Oh, it's still that residual attachment to pleasure. So then he went through a whole period of, he wasn't afraid of feeling pain, of torturing himself, starving himself, thinking he would cut that link with the body. And we probably all know the stories. He got so ill, so weak, he would urinate and fall on his face. Scratch his stomach, feel his backbone. Rub his hair, come out by the roots. Rub his skin, hair would come off. Then he had the question, might there be another way? (laughs) (laughs) He knew there's no one in terms of willingness, to, he had trust in the practice, he had vigor, there was no shortage of vigor, he was being present, he was gathered on that path, nobody could do more than this, but might there be another way? Then he had a memory, he recounts this to his disciples, I had a memory of being a child when my father, the king or the chieftain, was engaged in the business of it was like a plowing festival, harvest festival, something like that. 
And he remembered as a child when he withdrew. He's not talking about aversion. Oh, that's a bad festival. No, he just pulled off to the side. Let all the activity be out there, but pulled off to the side and sat underneath a rose apple tree. And he remembered as a child, with the innocence of a child, his attention just went to the body. Breathing in, breathing out. And he remembered the exquisite simplicity and brightness of that. And the pleasure of that. He went into what's called the first state, level, first jhana, of absorption, being plugged into the present moment, where everything was chitta-kagata, the heart, the mind, the thoughts all come together. He remembered that and he thought, that's the way. Why am I afraid of that pleasure? He said, that pleasure is not harming anyone. It's not exploiting anyone. Okay, if I attach to it, want to feel that way all the time, that'll lead to a problem. But he says, oh, I can work with that. But then he realized in the emaciated, weakened state that he was in, it would be hard for him to practice that. Remember, he'd been starving himself, eating just a handful of, small handful of rice or beans or soup a day. He realized, I need to eat something. Now, just at that moment, there was a was her name was Saka? Sujata. Sujata. Uh, there was someone that was um, had an offering, and it was saw this ascetic, and something about him made her think, "Wow, maybe she thought he looks like he needs a good meal." I don't know, but she had the thought. She made something really special, some milk rice, and thought to offer it to him. And it was just at the right time because he had made his decision. He needed to accept food. So he accepted that offering from this beautiful maiden named Sujata. At that time, Siddhartha Gautama was attended by five fellow ascetics. And when they saw the, the king of asceticism, their colleague, who when he broke through, because he was the best, he was going to tell them how to do it. When they saw him accepting the milk rice from a maiden, a beautiful maiden at that. They just shook their heads. He's lost it. He's going down the slippery slope of luxury. (laughs) No, they did. They abandoned him. Uh, But uh, Siddhartha Gautama trusted himself. He, He received that. This is an Im, Im, important, and Tanisra talks about this very well, but this is an, an important turning point in the youth trying to just grasp pleasure. That keeps eluding us. That's not the way. That does lead to old age, sickness, and death. Then thinking we can just vault ourselves beyond it, up into some outer space where we don't feel anything. Maybe just give everyone a simple deprivation chamber. We could put that in the suggestion box. (laughs) But if you're in there, you're still going to have an itch, and then your mind, you're going to keep coming down. But he tried that, came down. He tried aversion, the path of just crushing things. That was tense. There was no peace. The breakthrough then was in opening to form, not grasping form, not rejecting form, opening to form, opening to the feminine. To mind and matter. To the yin and the yang, just opening to how it is. Not chasing anything. The memory of the child was allowing the attention to come back and be fully where we are, but not trying to get rid of stuff, not trying deeply to grasp things, but to open to how it is. 
And that's what the Buddha did. He regained his strength. He practiced this healing. It's healing because it's bringing the different elements of our being together. He practiced what we were practicing. Remember I went over the five jhana factors this morning? Those were the same principles the Buddha used on his night of enlightenment. Vitaka, a thought. An applied thought that directs our attention here. Vichara, examining, exploring, feeling out. So a thought brings us here, I'm sitting. And then that receptive, you could call it more feminine, feeling out quality, feels out the body, feels out the posture. Feels out the in-breath, feels out the out-breath. When the mind wanders a bit, directing the mind. So the directing and the receptive together. The Buddha talked about the rapture started to come. Born of the seclusion. What's he talking about? Remember, when we're chasing things outside, our energy is dispersed. But when we let things be and allow that reversal of the attention back to where we are, all that dispersed energy then starts to be gathered. Similar, it's just an analogy of if, if the light from the sun goes through a magnifying glass, then when it focuses, it has power. As a child, did you ever do that? I'm sure mom wasn't so pleased you could do that, and then the light would come together and just burn a hole in the carpet right there. (laughs) Powerful. When the light comes together, when we're not chasing into the future, chasing into the past, not so busy trying to get rid of anything, not grasping, getting rid of, just letting the attention come back and gather, directed by a thought here, sustained by that feeling out exploring mind, then the energy starts to well up. And as we open to that, savor that, that's called rapture. Relaxing. Deeply relaxing so it can fill our whole body. The mind, thinking mind, rather than going somewhere else, is going here to the body, so the body and mind are together. The awareness, that which knows and feels, holding that, knowing that, the different elements of our being right here in the same place. That night, the the Buddha practiced that practice, allowed the mind to become composed, and then the three knowledges arose. First, this practice can be a pleasing abiding. And I encourage us all, this is hard work. We've been very touched by walking into the hurricane, being with all these currents. It's easy for me to talk about it, but it's not so easy to practice. But for the rest of our life, if we see the sense of learning how to be where we are, how to enjoy where we are, then when we're waiting in a line, we can have moments of just being withstanding, breathing. When we're walking across the room, we can take a little holiday at being able to ground ourselves in the way things actually are. That little by little, day after day, week after week, we then become more able to enjoy being where we are. That's the first blessing. But the more present we are, then we are able to see how things are. Knowledge then can arise. We can start to see the limitations of external sense pleasures when we're more aware and we see... You notice what happens when you're aware and then you, and you sit down to eat? You can feel the mind, because the food is so good here. 
eat the mouthful, and then it's so pleasant. One doesn't want that sensation to end. If one's not careful, you can just see kind of wanting to keep it coming. But wisdom can arise when we realize, ah, pleasant sensation, it's, it's lovely, but its nature is to well up and subside. If we want it always to be there, then we have to keep chasing things. So after the Buddha, in, uh, on that night of his awakening, enjoyed the pleasure of refreshing his body, then he turned his mind to knowledge, his own life story, like being a prince, being this appearance, having this food. And then, as it's told, he then saw how that karmic stream was preceded by another karmic stream. He saw his past stories, his past lives. I was born, I had this name, I had this appearance, I had this food, I had these pleasures, I had this pain, and there was dying. Seeing these different stories that we get so entangled in, that's what we're wrestling with in our retreat here, is all these stories. What we like, what we don't like, what they said, what I hope to do, what I'm afraid of. He saw these past stories. Then he saw other people's stories. He saw what leads to us being born in this situation, how the, these tendencies, these habits lead to be born in that situation. And then he finally turned his mind to, well, what causes suffering? And he saw that we're continually trying to find some stability by grabbing hold of some moment, some beautiful sight, some lovely taste, some lovely sound. With his composed mind, when he saw that everything is changing and dissolving, he saw that's impossible. It's the nature of the sense world, the world of sight and sound, to be unstable. Our teacher, Ajahn Chah, put it like this, if we're looking for security in that which is by nature uncertain, we're bound to suffer. So when the Buddha saw that, he was looking in the wrong place, then there was this letting go of that grasping. The ground of that insight To be able to see clearly, it helps to have moments of composure. And that's what we're doing. And if we are in the middle of the hurricane, and we are being beset by heaviness and desire and aversion and despair, and encourage us to remind ourselves that this is a courageous move. But that what if we don't do it all and could keep, keep pretending? Eventually this work has to be done. So why not do it now? Why not encourage each other and have a moment of, um, of simplicity, of bringing the mind here now? And when the mind's longing to be somewhere else, just to be able to question that, to bear that. There's a teaching the Buddha gave about uh, feeling that I think is, is helpful for us. He's, he's talking to his monks, but we can, he's talking to all of us. Monks, he said, when the uninstructed worldling, that means people who never practice, don't contemplate, when the uninstructed worldling experiences a painful feeling, he sorrows, he or she, some, it's going to be for everyone. He sorrows, grieves, laments, weeps, beating his breast and becomes distraught. <coughs> So when we experience a painful feeling, we grieve, lament, beat the breast, get distraught. He then feels two feelings. 
a bodily one and a mental one. And then he gives this image. Suppose they were to strike a man with an arrow and then strike him immediately afterwards with a second arrow. So then the man would have a feeling caused by two arrows. So too, when the uninstructed, someone who doesn't really practice, worlding experiences a painful feeling, they then experience two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. So when we have a painful feeling, then when we don't like it and stress about it, why is this happening to me? We've just been hit by a second arrow. We've, cre- we've doubled the suffering. The Buddha goes on, while experiencing that same painful feeling, the practitioner harbors aversion toward that feeling. When he harbors aversion toward painful feeling, the underlying tendency to, do- to aversion is accumulated. When we have a feeling we don't like and we just don't like it, we're accumulating this tendency to aversion. While experiencing that painful feeling, he then seeks delight in a sense of pleasure. It's painful, so then we we think, I don't like it here, we go somewhere else. Seeks delight in a sense of pleasure. For what reason? Because the uninstructed Practitioner does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than sense pleasure. We're in pain and so we don't know any other way out of it except to distract ourselves. By seeking delight in sense pleasure, the underlying tendency to desire for pleasant feeling is accumulated. He doesn't understand as it really is the origin and the passing away the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feelings. By not understanding these things, the underlying tendency to delusion is accumulated. Feeling pleasant feeling, he's attached. Feeling painful feeling, he's attached. Feeling neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he's attached. This is the uninstructed worldling in this way, is attached to birth, aging, and death, is attached to sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair. He's attached to suffering, I say. The Buddha goes on, monks, but when the instructed, this is what we're practicing now, we're all moving in that direction, when the instructed, noble disciple, We're aiming now to our true inheritance. The wise ones have said this is our potential to wake up. Monks, when the instructed noble disciple experiences a painful feeling, he does not sorrow, grieve, or lament, does not weep beating the breast, becoming distraught. He feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Suppose they were to shoot and a man with an arrow. But they would not shoot him immediately afterwards with a second arrow. That man would feel a feeling caused by one arrow only. So too, when the noble, instructed disciple experiences a painful feeling, he feels one feeling, just the bodily one. While experiencing that feeling, he doesn't harbor aversion. Since he doesn't harbor aversion toward that feeling, he doesn't, the underlying tendency to aversion is not accumulated. He doesn't seek escape into pleasure because the instructed noble disciple knows of an escape from painful feeling other than just distracting himself into sense pleasure. Therefore, the underlying tendency to desire for pleasant feeling is not accumulated. He understands, as it really is, the origin, the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feelings. 
since he understands the underlying tendency to ignorance is not accumulated. He feels pleasant feeling detached, not attached. Painful feeling, not attached. Neither painful nor pleasant feeling, not attached. This noble disciple has let go of birth, aging, and death. Lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair has let go of suffering, I say. Just to show us the direction we're going in. We come back to this moment. Painful feeling comes. We might see ourselves struggling, old habits, but we don't have to believe them. We can begin to question. We can begin to practice encouraging ourselves with a thought, encouraging ourselves to just be here, breathing in and breathing out encouraging ourselves to cultivate the capacity to be with the reality of this moment. The magic wand is listening. In the morning, we've been bowing to Kuan Yin, the great Bodhisattva of compassion, the one who listens to the sounds of suffering. These first few days, though it might appear that we're just abandoning the world, sitting on our butts, we're listening to the origin of suffering, the sounds of suffering. It's too difficult, the despair, the challenges, Listening reveals the nature of things. Listening has within it the power of compassion, the power to see through conditions into the peaceful underlying suchness of things. I encourage us to persevere. To listen to all these voices. Keep letting them come and go. And to trust that there, though it might seem like these are just insignificant moments and the big championship moments when we've succeeded or something like that are the important ones. They have their place. But to me, these ordinary moments now, I'm so grateful to have encountered the Dhamma, to be able to appreciate the ordinariness of one step, the ordinariness of hearing a sound arise and cease back into silence, the ordinariness of one in-breath and out-breath, and being able to realize when we start to bring the mind back, we realize all these different experiences of happiness and unhappiness, pleasure and pain, arise and cease back in this magic, mysterious, ever-present, bright listening. It's been here all along. I never noticed it. I was so busy trying to win the next thing. The Buddha called this our original brightness. 
And when we're so busy being afraid of pain, so busy grasping at pleasure, so busy trying to get there, we miss our original brightness that's always here and now. So I encourage us. We're walking in the footsteps of countless wise men and women over the centuries, practicing sitting, walking, standing, lying down, patience, and beginning again. Let's take heart and carry on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.